1: India Foundation, Arvind, the reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative Foreside Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion today is not tied to the offer sale of any investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Professor, uh, interesting week. We got the elections coming next week. We're going to have a show focused on Washington with our guests as well as sort of market outlook uh, with Tom Lee in the second half of the show. Um, we sort of have seen some volatility here. We saw some news. Maybe we're going to get a China trade deal. Maybe not. Um, <laughs> what's, what's, what's your thoughts? Thoughts here and what's yeah what's everything
2: happening. is uh, whipping up the market. Of course, uh, you know the big news was the the labor market report. So let's let's talk about it. I mean, it was it was definitely very very strong, strong but good in the sense that again that labor participation rate, which is so important to absorbing all this strong job gain without pressing the labor market, um, uh, you know, went up to sixty two point nine percent uh that was good that kept the unemployment rate actually at 37 actually it was up up half of a uh, uh five basis points but still rounded to 37 um but 250 is a big number um th- to say to say the least so uh th- that strong trend is is continuing um as you know we have um not only election we have the FOMC next week now we know they're not raising rates but the uh, what they're going to say in their directive um, is is going to be important for is there any chance that they're going to hesitate in december uh a rate hike and uh, with this strong report here and with those hourly wages now by the way there's sort of an interesting everyone 's talking about it, it jumped up to three points one percent year over year, the highest in nine years. We all knew this because actually last october it it fell off dramatically, and that data point once it fell off. We knew we were going to jump up this high, but yet it looks like people knew it but didn't know it, and the market reacted, even the bond market reacted. So we, we pressed higher on interest rates, um, and, and that's what's pressuring the market right now. I mean, um, uh, you know, the market was up 250, and now it's down to 50, and, and it is uh, interest rates. It, you know, nothing looks like the Fed is going to halt um, at this time.
1: So that it's all—it's a story to you about the rate cycle and uh, and, and more yeah, so than yeah. I, I think it's more I mean
2: recycle. I mean you know, the, the, I, I mean yes, the tweet. So there's a lot of skepticism I heard about. Oh, this is just trying to pump up the stock market when he tweeted that there might be a China deal yeah. or working on a China deal before the midterms. Um, uh... that may be true but i'm at least pleased that he realizes that the stock market wants him <laughs> to come to a deal uh, so uh... in a way uh, you know whether he's pumping it or not it means he recognizes hey you know this does affect the stock market and the stock market wants me to come to a deal so i'm i'm happy with that recognition even if it's purely for uh... political uh... play um... so yeah tuesday the election and then wednesday the fomc Again, uh, no change, but uh, uh, let, let, let's say the following. If there was any possibility they would not raise rates in December, this is about the time they have to start communicating that to the market. Um, and uh, so, you know, we will be watching for any, any little hints that might be in the directive uh, uh, next Wednesday
1: and and so sort of forecasting politics is is you know uh, not that easy um yeah. but uh, as you think about what are the different scenarios you can see developing next week and you know so sort of there's yeah. what's what's in the price today what does the market expect and then how is it going to react once they get the news
2: okay so you know uh following the betting markets following you know 538 which does the most complete analysis it, it it's very overwhelming republicans keep the senate and the democrats take the house um, uh... and uh, take a house with about a thirty seat majority um, if that happens i think the market will actually perhaps go off because up i mean up because some uncertainty has been lifted the when, when the expected value of an uncertain outcome uh, takes place, that usually is a kind of sigh of relief. Okay, nothing, quote, bad happened. Obviously, if, uh, you know, the Democrats should, you know, take the Senate, that would be a shock, uh, and a negative shock for the stock market. Uh, if the Senate, if they hold the Senate, but, uh, you know, the Dems maybe sweep to 40 50 uh, seats, uh, net gain, uh, over the Republicans, that would also be, uh, but not as bad as long as, as the Senate is, is held because of the appointments, et cetera, and so on. So, um, you know, again, um, anything could be a surprise, but, uh, and, and, you know, after the Trump election and, and so many pollsters calling it wrong, the, you know, people are treading very warily on that, but, uh, I myself would be very surprised if it didn't just, uh, Turn out to be what is now expected—a split between uh, the House and the Senate.
1: So, if the uh, so if we get the expected value on the uncertainty that's reduced, that's potentially a positive. Yeah, that's
2: potentially good. And of course, they face the Fed then the next day. Um, actually, that next Wednesday is is also the day that you know. I mean, a lot of a lot of these races are going to be close. They won't be decided until midnight or after midnight. So, you know, it'll be Wednesday morning. You'll be sort of digesting the election results and then 2 p.m. on Wednesday, you're going to say, okay, uh, now the Fed is coming out. Usually the week after the uh, employment report is a really quiet week because uh, the, uh, very little in the way of uh, scheduled announcements. But uh, this next week uh, does have uh, these two important events. So
1: we're going to talk with the policy analysts. Are there any policies you're looking for? Or any questions that you would, you would have as we, as we go to our, our first guest?
2: Uh. You know, you know, not not really. I mean in, 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 i I would my my expectations if we split on uh the uh the House and the Senate. Uh yes there will be investigations and all that. Um uh not no big legislation's gonna come out. I don't expect in the next two years, um uh any major leg I mean there, there's always a lot of uh uh subjects they agree upon. I don't think the Dems are gonna shut down uh, you know, the uh, the government in February and all that. I think that both parties realize that's a, a losing proposition or, or with the debt ceilings and all that. So they're going to make accommodations as far as that's concerned, and then everyone will be positioning for the 2020 presidential election.
1: Very good. Professor, thanks for some commentary to start the show today. Thank you very much. We're going to turn our, our conversation. We have Ed Mills, who's the Managing Director, Public Policy Analyst at Raymond James. So he focuses a lot on Washington policy, how it's going to impact the financial markets. Uh, Ed, welcome to our program. Hey, great to be here. So uh, hopefully you heard a little bit about how Professor Siegel handicapped uh, the elections, what he sees. Um, yep. before, I, before we sort of get to your views, maybe just tell our, our listeners a little bit about uh, yourself, how you got to Raymond James, how you, how you started focusing on, on politics.
3: Yeah, so I moved to Washington, D.C. back in 2001. Uh, Started off my career uh, working on Capitol Hill. Um, I've worked in both the House and the United States Senate. Uh, I was a policy advisor for a member from New York City for a number of years, where I was a staff on the House Financial Services Committee. Found myself there uh, during the financial crisis. Worked in the Senate as a banking staffer for the Small Business Committee, working on issues getting uh, access to capital uh, to the nation's small businesses and what the Small Business Administration can do. Um, but about 10 years ago now, I transitioned over to the private sector and had an opportunity to move to an investment bank that's headquartered here uh, in Washington, D.C., and I try to translate uh, Washington for Wall Street. Um, about a year ago, I ended at uh Raymond James. And my job here is to look across of what's going on here in Washington and what could potentially impact the stock market. One of the things I've always said is that something that could be really exciting here in Washington, D.C., the market doesn't care about and vice versa. If it's sometimes something the market really cares about, it's more of an esoteric fight uh, that's going on in DC. So boots on the ground here are always very helpful to kind of read the tea leaves appropriately.
1: So how do, how do you find working on on sort of uh, on Wall Street versus Washington? What what do you like?
3: Um, it, the day starts earlier. Um, the uh, you know one of the things that's uh, always fascinating to me is that the Wall Street culture uh, is a. Uh, early-rise culture, getting in front of the market, Um, and, you know, D.C. is kind of a a late-rising city, and oftentimes you can't find out something a couple hours into the the market. Um, The challenges are great. Um, You know, kind of it's a a great intellectual challenge to get an idea of uh, really what the market cares about and how kind of things develop uh, in D.C., and you know, acting as that translator is a, is a very challenging but very rewarding uh, opportunity for me.
1: And now you got to start monitoring new tools like Twitter to see what's going on. Is that your new uh, communication medium of, of choice?
3: It is, because um, you know, it is a, a great uh, primary source uh, opportunity, making sure that uh, you know, one of the things that is nice about it is that um, you instantaneously get a reaction that could take you hours in the past to get uh, and it also allows you to have a uh, multi kind of partisan uh, reaction so that you make sure that you are not just uh, going to be to any partisan bias that you might have, that you, you get a good opportunity to understand exactly uh, this is how Democrats feel, this is how Republicans feel. And within that, like the, the liberal and conservative aspects of, of, of both parties, um, you know, trying to make a decision as to kind of how you get that Fragile flower of consensus to come together and ultimately get a piece of legislation through Congress and signed into law.
1: Yeah. So how, how are you? How would you say you know the Raymond James clientele? Like how are they looking at the elections here? How do they? You know, what are the types of questions they're bringing to you that as you, the expert there, like what what's what's on their minds? Topical.
3: Well, I think that you know it's a uh, personal curiosity how this election is going to turn out, and you know immediately after that is what is going to be the agenda for uh, the new Congress? And what does that mean to the presidency of uh, Donald Trump? And what does that mean to kind of look at uh, his reelections? So as I I look at the agenda, uh, one of the things that we have said since the election of President Trump is that a big part of the reaction in the market, in our opinion, uh, the positive reaction has been the deregulatory agenda that he has pursued. Um, And, With the election, and mentioned that it's extremely likely that Republicans main control of the Senate, it's the Senate in the Senate alone who confirms any of the nominees. And so, if the market's up because of the deregulatory agenda, a Senate majority for Republicans post election continues that agenda, which I think is part of the reason why uh, people have been hoping for kind of this uh, post market rally. Uh, as in part of why the the professor also mentioned that you could see that sell off because that does disrupt some of the deregulatory agenda if Democrats have a majority and would be blocking some of the picks that Trump have.
1: So is there do you are you sticking with like the uh, sort of the, the the pollsters there or his market his market odds uh, that that are forecasting the you know the, the Republicans keep the Senate the Democrats take the House anything more controversial that you have that you're that you're looking at it?
3: you know a, one thing that we uh, say sometimes is that um democrats have not been this optimistic about an election since at least 2016 um and you know we we, we say that in jest but one of the things that we have written about is about the fluidity of the outcomes. and in dc if we don't know the outcome of an election we label it as a toss-up and a toss-up implies a kind of coin flip chance that there's about a 50% chance it goes one way, it's a 50% chance it goes the other way. Looking at a lot of the analysis where you look at kind of where races were rated the day before the election, and you go back and say, all right, did it fall 50-50 to Dems and Republicans? Uh, You never actually see that. Uh, In the Senate, you usually see races fall 70 to 90 percent in one direction that were labeled toss up. Well, if something goes 90 percent in one direction, it shouldn't have been labeled a toss up the day before. In the House, it's usually in the 60 to 80 percent of the time it goes in one direction. So our belief is that those toss up races in the House are going to disproportionately fall towards Democrats. Um, and in the Senate, it's arguably going to disproportionately fall towards Republicans. Uh, but that's a very unusual outcome. Um, we have to look to the 2010 election where you saw that uh, bifurcation occur. But we've never in the history of our country have had one party take over the majority of one house while the other party took over the you know, or expanded their majority uh, in the other. I think that speaks to some of the polarization mm. uh, that we have going on. Um, and whenever you hear something that has never happened before, You have to kind of take that with a grain of salt until it actually does happen. So I am of the belief that that's how it falls. But we do have a very large number, especially in the House, of races that are in the toss-up category that do actually have to fall towards Democrats for them to have enough seats to win the majority.
1: We're talking with Ed Mills, who's a public policy analyst at Raymond James, focused on Washington, the elections coming up. Um, when, when you think about the big issues that, that that are coming, the press, you didn't expect any major um, major new initiatives coming out of, out of the Congress, but is there anything that you're looking at when you think about right, what, after these elections, what are we looking for? And obviously, you have to see what the outcomes are, but what? how, how do you see policy shaping out over the, the next few years?
3: Yeah, so one of the things that we have... Um, highlight in our research is that there's been a number of things that the House of Representatives would not even have a vote on, despite there being widespread public support for certain initiatives. And that really came from the 2010 election with the rise of the Tea Party. Uh, We sometimes have called this election the rise of the herbal Tea Party on the left, and that's going to bring with it its own governing uh, issues for kind of democratic leadership, But when we look at possible agenda items, we could see an honest discussion about what immigration reform could look like. I think there is going to be a uh, refocus on infrastructure and if we're going to get an infrastructure bill. When we look at spending fights, um, divided government generally brings you kind of status quo or sometimes a slight increase uh, in government funding because the, the pathway towards consensus is Democrats getting their priorities funded, and those are usually disproportionately domestic priorities, and Republicans getting their um, projects um, funded, which are disproportionately frequently defense projects. So the legislative agenda, from our perspective, is a continuation of the fiscal stimulus that we have seen under the first two years of President Trump, which is another thing that we think is going to be uh, taken by the market as okay. Um, but beyond that, the, the main focus uh, that the we will see immediately is that there's going to be a rise in investigations, a rise in oversight. So there's going to be an increase in headline risk that the market's going to have to digest over the next couple of years uh, with a potential Democratic majority in the House.
1: Yeah, this is, it's one big question. Would we get an infrastructure bill? And you'd say Given Trump had talked about that, the Democrats always wanted more infrastructure spending. You thought you would have seen that sooner, but they focused on taxes, uh, tax cuts before, so they didn't get that done first. um, And earlier, so you wonder if that's going to be one of the things they come back to. Now, you know, I just saw some headlines before we on the on the show that Cudlow was saying. That uh, if they're going to do, if they get another tax cut that he wants to work on, that they maybe they would do it with spending cuts, um, which is a little counter to that. But maybe they're starting to worry; interest rates are starting to rise. Trump's a low interest rate guy. Is uh, you think fiscal stimulus is is going to be a problem for rates?
3: It's potential. The, the The way I always kind of view kind of actions of Congress or actions of the administration in in the larger rate conversation is that I view the the. Federal Reserve is the only entity in Washington, D.C. that has the true opportunity to coordinate monetary policy, fiscal policy coming out of Congress, and regulatory policy. And you can't have everything tight or bad things happen, and you can't have everything loose or bad things happen. For the last decade, what we had was really loose monetary policy, really uh, tight regulatory policy, and totally dysfunctional uh, fiscal policy as we threaten the full faith and credit of the United States government with debt ceiling fights. Since the election, that's been completely changed. We're seeing Congress passing massive fiscal stimulus. We see uh, a deregulatory push that includes the banks. And so if you can't have everything loose, the Fed has to tighten on monetary policy. And that's the political cover that they have had. And I think they will continue to have um, with kind of their interest rate decisions and their monetary policy decisions. Um, I know that Trump has bashed the Fed quite a bit and has bashed Powell. Um, And, you know, there is concern here about that in D.C. The bigger issue to me has been Trump has had an opportunity to fully make up who is on that board through his selections. And the selections he's had are selections that the market and the business community has liked. And that's the bigger issue. So I, I think that the Fed... Yeah, will listen to kind of Trump or kind of take into account Trump, but will not kind of make uh, true monetary policy decisions based upon his statements.
1: And and how do you handicap the trades? We saw the tweet that got people excited saying we're making progress on trade and then, then Kudlow comes out and starts saying, well, we're not making as much progress as you think and it's going to take longer and it's, he's not as optimistic as he once was. Are they playing good cop, bad cop? Or you think, I mean, I, I my expectation was just like we saw with, with NAFTA, that they, you know, he was going to rip up NAFTA, but then we got sort of the new NAFTA that was closely, you know, not that different, um, that they were going to have a lot of rhetoric, but that they would actually come to a deal. Do you, do you think that we're going to actually come to a, a China deal?
3: Um, probably, but I don't think it's anytime soon. Uh, I think that the concern that I've had is that um, <clears throat> this is an issue that, you know, from my perspective, the, the market expected three things with China trade. It was, one, going to get resolved before the midterm election. Number two, the tariffs probably were not going to go into effect. And number three, uh, there was not going to be any impact to earnings or supply chain. And that has been wrong. And we're coming to the realization that this is a fight that is much deeper and much harder to resolve than NAFTA 2.0 or USMCA or kind of a reworked South Korean deal. And what we are really asking the Chinese to do is change their industrial policy, and they don't want to do it. They'd, they'd be happy to write a check to get out of this. Uh, so we continue to believe this gets worse before it gets mm. better, and we're using these other trade deals that Trump is getting victories on as trying to ring-fence China into having a, almost a whole world against China as they try to negotiate um, a final solution. But that's, that could be years away, actually.
1: So, as you sort of advise clients what to do, what the ramifications of that are. So, is that a you know stay? You know, the, the trends have been emerging markets really selling off, China really selling off, U.S. Uh, you know outperforming the rest of the world. Is that still a? You think the global markets, emerging markets, have pressure from all this? Is is that one of yeah. the, the suggestions for Raymond James?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the 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 note we put out this morning uh, related to China trade was fade the rally because mm. um, w- well. We like to be optimistic. We felt as if there was a strange timing between the tweets this week of progress in the midterm election on Tuesday. Um, There is going to be a lot of optimism, and there could be, you know, I don't want to fight the tape in that optimism uh, throughout this month as we get to the G20. Trump is going to be saying a lot of positive things, but my fear has been that Trump is setting up China for failure, that the conditions of Trump meeting with Xi at the G20 is China has to tell us exactly what they're going to change. And it's a very real probability that whatever China offers up, Trump is going to say is not good enough, and that Trump uses that as the reason to go to 25% tariffs on the $200 billion worth of goods that currently have a 10% tariff on and then look to expand uh, tariffs on the remaining $267 billion worth of goods that come into the United States. And then it comes to a question of what happens after tariffs. And you consistently see a real push uh, in the tech sector to label our tech sector as a national security asset and limit Chinese access to it. That those are that's a real issue. That's going to be very difficult to resolve in the near term.
1: Yeah, when well, we're talking with Ed Mills, who's a policy strategist, uh, managing director at Raymond James, focused on Washington policy, politics, uh, and sort of interesting timing ahead of the midterms, and and think about the market impl- implications for all this. Uh, so we just focused on China trade and and the emerging markets. Um, any other, you know, that, that's certainly been front and center has been the, this international dynamics. Any other U.S.-focused policies that you're, you think that, so we talked a little bit about the infrastructure spending, but anything else you wanted to drill into on just different different uh, outcomes we might see?
3: Yeah, I think that the one of the other areas that I'm going to be focused on post-election is <clears throat> Trump has spent a lot of time in his first two years talking about health care and prescription drug prices, and if there is a Democratic majority, uh, in the House post the election. One thing that you could see is a push there to have Democrats seeking to put into place legislation that matches his rhetoric. Um, but that legislation would probably be set up in a way uh, that it would be hard for Republicans to support uh, having a headline fight over kind of the, the future of prescription drug prices in kind of healthcare generally. Separate from that, the other big issue I think that we are uh, going to be monitoring is, you know, Congress is much more interested and in, regulators are much more interested in regulating tech. Uh, so I'm having a lot of conversations with tech investors about how D.C. works and what that regulation and legislation could look like. i uh, been doing this job for almost 10 years, I've had very few conversations for the first uh eight, nine years of that with tech investors, but a lot of it, uh, conversations the last six months uh, as tech regulation is becoming a real issue here in DC.
1: No, for sure, and you just think about it, the volatility that we had in the last uh, four weeks in October, you know, tech has been, really, for the last, like you said, the last 10 years, tech has way outperformed, and so all the, whether it's momentum strategies, growth strategies, they've done much better than the more traditional value strategies, and uh, then you started getting some cracks of that, you started seeing the CEOs testifying on TV, um, and then you know now, and you get some some earnings misses, a little slowdown, a little bit more regulation. That that uh, I could see that being a concern.
3: Yeah, sometimes I have uh, uh, investors or portfolio managers who tell me, "Let me know what you're talking about, so I don't invest there." Because they you know DC is a black box for most folks, and when you're trying to understand kind of DC risk, uh, oftentimes investors decide that there are other places to invest and make their money that is not exposed by DC. Uh, Because sometimes it is almost impossible to prove a negative one way or another coming out of
1: uh, our government. So do you think, I mean, we're seeing a little bit of that uh, regulation from the the Europeans as well on the tech companies. Is there any is Is there a segment of that that you think we should be most worried about, or is it just broad trends in tech regulation that that you're focused on?
3: so it's a, it's 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 a broad trend. Um, from a legislative regulatory perspective, it is what you mentioned. Um, from a trade perspective, it is concern about uh, hardware, uh, concerns about disruptions to the supply chain. Uh, one of the things that I will say about all regulation and all things coming out of d c, and it, it's something that I will always you know ask myself as I'm trying to evaluate. Uh, DC policy risk on the stock market on an individual stock is almost exclusively things out of DC are never as bad as you fear, nor as good as you hope. And so when the market is pricing in as bad as you fear on something, almost exclusively, that's been a buying opportunity. And on the flip side, when people are telling me that nothing's going to happen and they're pricing in and as good as you hope, I tell folks that that's maybe a time to take profits. Early on in some of these regulatory fights, you see the market price in as bad as you fear more frequently because they're trying to understand and trying to digest some of these issues. Uh, So from a macro level, when you see some of those dislocations at this point, I'd still say that that's more of an opportunity um, to buy than be, be concerned.
1: Yeah, I've been using that framework really myself, talking about what's going on in China. So it's interesting to hear your note coming out this morning saying, um, fade the rally, because I, I feel like that, you know, that does seem to be the narrative that China is that we're not gonna ever come to a deal that, you know, it's as bad as it people are fearing, but your point is that hey, it's gonna still actually get a little bit worse before it gets better.
3: Yeah, and and one of the concerns that and one of the ironies here is that the entire business community is certainly interested in in, in the market wants Trump to walk back from this China trade fight, but that can actually be the worst case scenario for US businesses because um, the message that would send China is that we will kind of go to the wall, we will go all in in putting pressure on you, but if we have any sort of weakness here in the United States, we're gonna back off immediately. Yeah. And you know, when China tried to enter the WTO, we were pressuring them a lot on human rights, ultimately, the United States backed off. And there's not been a criti- a credible push on human rights since then. So I don't, you know, once we start this fight, you have to finish this fight. And that's where I've been on the, um, this is still a lot that needs to be resolved before we can cut that deal.
1: Excellent. Interesting. Ed, where, where can people stay in touch with all your work and all the, and all the thoughts that you have?
3: Uh, you know, can kind I of go to the Raymond James website? Um, kind of some of the high-profile pieces kind of are in our Point of View section, RaymondJames.com. Uh, we can kind of give you a good macro summary of uh,
1: what's what's happening out there. Very good. It's been a great conversation. We're talking with Ed Mills, public policy analyst, managing director at Raymond Dame, Dream and James, based in Washington D.C. Thanks again for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Stay tuned, everyone. After a short break, we're going to be talking with Tom Lee, a fund strategist. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 132. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, and I'd like to welcome my guest for the remaining part of the program. Thomas Lee, he's a managing partner and head of research at Fundstract Global Advisors. A lot of accomplishments on Wall Street, Tom, Uh, but also most importantly, coming on Wharton Business Radio, uh, a Wharton grad. Welcome to our program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is a it's a pleasure to talk. Uh, I saw a headline um, crossing Bloomberg this week that uh, Tom is wildly bullish, and I uh, was just getting connected with with Fundstrat Global. Uh, I figured it's a good time to connect and and hear your thoughts. Um, so maybe you could just give us a a little bit. Give us a little bit about um, Fundstrat. Tell us to our listeners a little bit about about the firm that you guys have before we get into some of your your specific views.
0: Thanks, Jeremy. Um, yeah, glad to talk about Fundstrat. We're a independent research firm founded four years ago. Um, out of the four research analysts that we have, including myself, I do macro strategy. Uh, but our policy team and our quant team uh, actually are, are worked with at our former employer, which is J.P. Morgan. Um, I was the chief equity strategist at J.P. Morgan and had been at that firm uh, for 15 years prior to founding Fundstrat. And we try to essentially create uh, for our clients uh, an unencumbered, independent view of what's happening uh, in markets with the idea of trying to provide comprehension to either uh, markets through the idea of regimes, technical or quantitative views. And uh, you know, oftentimes our, our work, and I think our work over the years, because it is uh, somewhat different and the approach, tends to be. Uh, contrarian uh, to a lot of consensus views, so you know for our clients which are in 16 countries we're often uh, you know in conflict with their existing views
1: hmm. and so how's that general research business uh, trended there's a lot of different research trends in the market you have Mifid coming out of Europe how would you say as an independent have you found being an independent research firm
0: well it's very tough um, you know research <clears throat> research is a tough business right now because one it's very competitive um, and I think that the amount of value added it has changed a lot because of technology. Um, and I think it's, it's so that's been the tough thing. The good news is uh, our clients tend to use a barbell approach, you know, so that if you're a, a top provider of information, uh, they get the bulk of the economics. And so we've been very fortunate that the engagement of our product is, is incredibly high with our clients. Um, but as I mentioned, part of the reason they like working with us is our views don't mirror or pattern themselves after uh, a lot of what you see on the street. Uh, oftentimes, it it is in direct conflict with, with their thinking, mm. and um, I think they just find it helpful to their process.
1: So, I guess where would you say? So, if you're if you think you're the most uh, most um, contrary to what they're thinking, is there is the wildly bullish headline? Is that the thing that's the most out of line with where people are currently thinking, or?
0: Um, well, the, probably what you're referring to <clears throat> is a piece we put out um, Tuesday. It was kind of an urgent bulletin, um, and the idea is what what the selling that we took that took place in October, which was really uh, just you know almost indiscriminate towards the last two weeks, had uh, broken down the internal structure of the markets to a level that has almost always in the past marked the end of a sell-off when you're in a bull market. So that's why we, uh, you know, essentially think that despite the uh, uh, numerous uncertainties, I mean, there's a mountain of uh, mountain of problems out there um, that I think the markets are going to actually stage a double-digit rally. So that's one example. I hmm. think probably the most extreme uh, divergence we have is that we think that we're in the process of making a a really abrupt shift towards value investing, you know, something that might last 10 to 15 years. And I think that's probably the most, it's probably the most important dialogue clients are having now because, you know, growth has been so good for people for so long.
1: Yeah, that, and that sort of piggybacks after the conversation we're having just the last half on, on sort of policy side and tech regulation. It has been a growth-led market that FANG's been running for 10 years and value, which you, which largely, though, can be a sector call, sort of like financials, energy, being underperformers, really, for the last decade. Is that what it's all about? Is it a sector call or is it a little bit more than that, that fi- that value defined in, in a different way?
0: Well, you know, I think I think that everything you said is definitely part of it. You know, um because you know, value and growth uh, can, can be viewed through a market lens, you know, like hey, what has high multiples, low multiples, what has secular visibility, which doesn't. But I think the other characteristic that we think has defined growth versus value investing <clears throat> is actually uh, asset light versus asset heavy. So in a, in a world of falling inflation, um, which has been firmly you know, the secular trend since 1980, probably wasn't apparent until the mid-80s. But in a world of falling inflation, and this is like our Wharton uh, Finance 101, you know, Alan Abelson, uh, is that you're, you're disincented from being long assets. The you know, you, falling inflation environment is creating an environment that incents being asset light <clears throat> because uh, you don't get the leverage from a balance sheet from having either debt or uh, asset-intensive businesses. And so the strategy I think that would have been in place in a falling inflation environment should be switch to asset light, outsource capital, uh, or production, and in a labor surplus market, which we've had since 1999, uh, so since 1999 to now, we've actually had labor surplus, you also want to switch to OPEX um, because people are cheaper than capital which is falling in value. In a rising rate environment, it's going to change the numerical return, the nominal return from a DCF model, and they actually would want you to become more asset heavy and uh, rely less on OPEX, and now we're entering a period of labor shortage, which means that capital employed might be a cheaper way to employ people than labor, and so asset intensive businesses should outperform, which
1: generally, as you said, tend to be more value. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, and what is there a turning point on tech that you think causes it, or is it just the whole that economic policy cycle on this asset light versus asset intensive?
0: Yeah. Well, um, you know, a, a good toggle to see, and I, we've pointed this out to our clients, is if you take inflation break evens minus core piece CPI, so that's basically the market's future inflation view minus the present, right? When that turns down, that has explained. More than 90% of the rotation between financials and healthcare since '09. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, <clears throat> healthcare is asset light, financials is asset heavy. That rotation is almost entirely explained by inflation premia or discount. Um, in tech, I actually think I, I'm really I actually think tech is actually a value sector, believe it or not, um, because it is uh, positively correlated to inflation and interest rates. Because um, part of it is that as businesses shift to ca- uh, asset-based production, you know, productivity, so as you have labor shortage, you have to use robots. That's purchasing tech equipment, so tech is positively levered to rising rates. And I think a lot of tech companies actually are asset-based. You know, Amazon <clears throat> is a perfect example of an asset-based business, you know, and inflation would help their business uh, because it makes their value proposition that much more attractive. I actually think companies like Facebook, which are really asset-light, could start to become asset-heavy business models in the future. Um, you know, Facebook generates $7 per year per customer, you know, so out of their 2.2 billion users, they they generate $7 a year in ad sales. If they were to store value for their customers, uh, you know, those same 2.2 billion customers pay close to $800 a year in banking fees. Which is an asset-heavy business. I think it's it's not, It wouldn't be hard for Facebook to say, hmm, you know, why don't I start offering something that looks like banking to clients, and I could turn my seven dollar ARPU into ten or fifteen, and that would double their revenues.
1: And that's not even a leap. Uh, it's not like that. They they have to look that far. You go look at uh, the, the China big tech companies. They do a lot of that. Exactly.
0: I think that yes, as we as shift to an asset-heavy world, the financial industry and technology are in a collision course.
1: Yeah. And so one, so as you think about your, as, as a strategist, you put together a lot of different themes and so value seems to be one of your themes. You think about sort of the, the next phase, um, you know, automation is one of your big themes and sort of speaking, speaking to this tech, how how do you think about automation as a category of of things that that you're excited about?
0: Uh, Oh, we, we're really excited about automation. Um, and it's because, um, you know, demographics explain so much of what happens in markets. You know, China's growth story is largely explained by urban, rural to urban migration plus infrastructure. And, and actually, believe it or not, most of the U.S. bull markets have been explained simply by population surges. Um, and, but what's really interesting is automation is born out of a, ne- a necessity. I think there's probably close to a 20-year period from today where we'll be structurally short globally of prime working age labor relative to the total population, it's particularly acute in the U.S. In just the next 10 years in the U.S., it's like 8 million shortage of workers, um, and that's why, you know, like retailers and I, I don't know if you uh, heard from Jan from WWE talk about this. Like, you know, he doesn't think Target has can get 100,000 employees for for holiday, um, for their seasonal holiday hires unless they pay you know $25 an hour. That's going to create the need for Automation. So, automation is not replacing people. It's born out of the necessity because of a shortage of people. And um, in the last two cycles, we had labor shortage: which was 1948 to 1967, and 1991 to 99. Most people think of those as remarkable periods of technological innovation, and tech stocks were monsters. But actually, at the core, both were periods of structural shortage of. of Human labor.
1: They do say necessity is the mother of invention, right? You have no choice; yep. you need to figure out how to do it.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Um, and so, I guess one of the other themes is is millennials, and that's all tied into this demographics of the just changing population dynamics. Or is there a specific the millennials have a certain set of buying habits, certain set of preferences that that's sort of going beyond this demographic story? <clears throat>
0: um, it's both, you know, millennials. Um, you know, when you, when you think about the impact of a generation, um, you know, you can, you can look at total size, but, you know, let's say you define each generation as just 20-year birth periods. Um, but the better way to measure the impact of a generation is to compare the 20 years of birth versus the previous 20 years, you know, so like two different 20-year periods. And the millennials are almost 40% bigger than Gen X. So what it means is Generation X um, – parents didn't have a lot of... Generation X, as when they became parents, didn't have a lot of... or had a lot of kids. And that's because the boomers, who were the parents of Generation X, didn't have a lot of kids. So you almost skipped a generation of birth. Um, millennials are 95.6 million at the peak in the U.S. Um, they're 2.3 billion globally. So it's the single largest generation ever born. And they're just entering the period where their contribution to the economy... Uh, is the strongest. It's really age 28 to 48 that a generation uh, has the biggest economic impulse. Uh, The median age of a a millennial today is 26 and a half. So we have have this uh, chart that we published for our clients that when you look at the number of people in that age group I just defined, it's actually starting to hook up uh, sharply. It's been falling since 2000 to 2018, and now it's hooking up. And the slope of that hookup looks a lot like 1982. And of course, 1982 to 1999 was a period of where uh, potential growth really accelerated because overall consumption on a real basis was accelerating. And I think that that same type of impulse is now happening with millennials. And
1: this, their their reputation is that they're never gonna leave their parents home. So is it that they're eventually gonna start buying houses and that's the uh, one of the, the things that we gotta think about from a you know, a lot of people are worried about where we are in the interest rate cycle that the home builders and all these housing stocks have really come under pressure. So do you have a longer term, more constructive view on that from that from that perspective?
0: Yes, um absolutely. So I think people tend to forget that there's dynamism as a generation ages. I mean the boomers if we had to write the fifty year history of baby boomers in nineteen sixty nine, we would have thought the world would have descended into chaos because the boomers were hippies, uh, anti-war, anti-establishment, um, you know free love, communes. But of course, as they entered the workforce, the boomers became incredibly productive, um, and actually, you know, politically turned quite conservative. <clears throat> Millennials, if you look at the number today, 2018 is the year that there is now officially more millennials that earn income than are dependents. So this is the year of the crossover. Hmm. Uh, but they're still quite young. So I think the, bo- the millennials are going to turn into an incredibly productive workforce. Uh, so I'm, I'm su- super optimistic about the future of millennials. And and sorry, and on, on demand, absolutely. Um, Again, sorry, I know this is radio, but I, we, we've supplied to our clients how if you overlay that, that number of people, age 21 to 45, that has explained almost every housing cycle since 1960. So, uh, by that math, we should see housing starts in the U.S. hit close to 2.5 million by 2026.
1: So we got, so we've and, and then the, and just for people for context, where that is today, that number is much, much lower.
0: Yeah, it's about half. It's about 1.3 million. And... Here's the interesting thing, you know, uh, at J.P. Morgan, Bruce Kasman, the economist, always had this great stat, which is for every uh, 250,000 increase in starts, it adds a point of GDP growth, and according to the NRE, it requires four full-time jobs. So if we go from, you know, 1.2 million starts to 2.5 million, that's four percentage points of GDP growth, uh, more than that, plus 4 million jobs created
1: yeah, just for this housing demand. I, you, if you're anybody who's bought a house or has a family going into a house, you know you know the truth to those statements. Um, yeah,
0: it's it, it should be very good for economic growth.
1: The, um so you know the uh, w- one of the other themes that I know you, you've you've talked about a lot. We had a show focus on this area a few a few weeks ago, sort of blockchain technology, and that's one of these areas that was you know really booming for a while, and then all these different coins and the, and the cryptocurrencies really sort of fell off, and now people seem to it seems to die down in conversations. You don't hear about it quite as much, um, but sort of fun strack global advisor. You guys are working on some different sort of crypto-related strategies. Anything you want to sort of talk about your look at the space and and what you think, uh, you know, you're trying to help clients with there?
0: Yeah. um, You know, blockchain is very much on the minds of our clients, you know. um, But from a practical perspective, uh, our clients are following crypto, one, just to make sure they're not missing anything important developing, you know, because it, it, you know, you you don't want to necessarily ignore an emerging technology. But uh, from a practical matter today, they're, they're very limited in what they can do uh, because their investment mandates don't allow them to buy non-equities. <clears throat> um, so I think that what we spent a lot of time when we talk to our clients is really helping them understand the use cases for crypto. Um, I, I think there's a real under, an underappreciation that there's already established known use, use cases for crypto today um, and it's way beyond a fad. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know how much time you want uh, to spend on this topic, but I, it's there's a lot to talk about.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, we have probably about six, seven minutes on on the show. Um, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of different ways you can play it. I mean, so there's the, I mean, there, well, for. The different there's a different currencies that, or different uh cryptos that people can buy there's definitely increasingly people are creating baskets of stocks that sort of related to it and then um, different funds that can try to track those or do you think there is a case to try to buy the individual stocks that might be most levered to it so if you think about it from your your equity strategy days creating these different thematic stock baskets that people might think are derivative plays or do you want to do you think you should be thinking about it from really just trying to own the digital assets and, and the different ways there
0: um, I think ultimately it's going to be both. Um, I think there are. I, I think it makes sense to look at um, owning some of the equities, because for instance, you know, Bitcoin today as a, as a blockchain, you know, it's it's well designed to actually move money around, right? To actually transfer money uh, to different users. Bitcoin sent 1.3 trillion dollars worth of money this year. That's two and a half times the amount of money that's transmitted on PayPal. And it's seven times the amount of money that Discover Network sends. And it's catching up to Visa. You know, Visa is about $8.9 trillion. So it's not like Bitcoin is infinitesimally small relative to the Visa network. Um, and if you look at the exchanges, which is how the cryptos are actually moved around, um, you know, ICE, which is one of the largest uh, exchanges in the world, um, and they're actually getting into crypto trading, but they, they posted two and a half. Billion dollars of profits in the last 12 months. Bitmex, which is about, you know, three years old, and uh, only five percent of all crypto trading is probably going to earn well over a billion dollars this year. Uh, same thing with Binance. So two exchanges in crypto are essentially matching the profitability of ICE. So, you know, it's pretty big. I think the real opportunity is going to be that blockchain is going to allow a lot of the banks to reduce their staff and re-architect their business. So it's a big fintech story. Um, And then I think the exchange-like entities like ICE uh, really will make a lot of money as they enter crypto trading. And I think that people who make equipment, whether uh, for the ASICs, you know, uh, trust is becoming a a piece of hardware. So, you know, it's an opportunity there too. So I I think those ETFs that track uh, this
1: on the equity side,
0: you know, will actually be a decent way to get exposure, but you're probably better off buying the digital asset directly as well.
1: Hmm. So on on the banks, uh, from a perspective, you you sort of talked about the... Um, competition there, you know, I don't know, do you think it is a competition for the banks um, and sort of maybe destroying some of their value proposition or do you think it's just going to make them more efficient at doing what they're doing? And sort of, you know, if you think this banks is a closed e- ecosystem for how they, how you transfer, store your money, that there'd be these alternative outside the traditional financial system, Where how do you see that impacting the banks longer run?
0: Yeah, I think the answer is a bit of both. You know, it's like, um, you know, if you think about value capture today uh, in OECD, um, has this data, but the, the financial economic value add or the value capture of the financial system globally is about $5 trillion a year. Um, it's 6% of GDP, and if we think about it, um, that 6% is not the time value of money because we know interest rates are low, it's really the cost of trust. You know, um, how much do you pay to trust to transact between two parties using a trusted entity in the middle? But the way that math works, it means that the average person spends three and a half weeks a year for the privilege priv- privilege of using a centralized financial system, and it's as I mentioned globally, it's about eight hundred sixty to a thousand dollars per person per year. And um, Facebook, which people trust, is a trusted entity, generates you know seven dollars a year per customer. So there's that's the convergence, right? That The day Facebook becomes a bank, they have 100x opportunity of their revenue versus what banks could lose. So I think that that battle, which will include putting trust onto a blockchain, uh, makes tech and financials battle each other out. But the big scale entities like the Visa, MasterCard, American Express, even JP Morgan, this could be a huge opportunity because they employ a lot of people to generate that trust. You know, J.P. Morgan has 200,000-plus employees. I mean, J.P. Morgan, in in theory, could have a significantly reduced employee base if they're using blockchain but make the same money. So I, I think it's an opportunity, but also it's creating new entrants.
1: Oh well, that would that would be a big thread to explore with Jamie's comments on the blockchain but we don't actually have that much time to talk about it. Um but uh, it's an interesting um proposition there. So we have about, you know, maybe sort of the last 30 40 seconds. Any other big picture thoughts that we haven't really talked about that you thought we should we should make sure we bring up?
0: Yeah, I think that you know the the one message especially when you have a month like October is there's two things to keep in mind. The only way to really capture the true value of owning equities is you got to think long-term, you know, in long cycles. And I know that that's like a Wharton uh, in the DNA, and I know Professor Siegel uh, says it all the time, um, especially in the U.S., because bull markets last 20 years. You know, I, I think people become too worried about late cycle um, we worry more about late cycle than the number of times we actually should worry about a late cycle. We should only really worry about late cycle when there's a recession. And the second is that you can't time the market even daily because you know if you miss out on just the 10 best trading days a year – you're missing out on the majority of the stock market's annual return. So
1: yeah, Tom, I patience is important. I appreciate you joining us. We've been talking with Tom Lee, founder of Fundstract Global Advisors. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and series XM 132. Thanks to producer Daniel Bruno. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.